0: All right, we're in Galatians 3. You guys marked it in your Bibles, yes? I'll read the first four verses of Galatians 3, and then in our study time, we'll go all the way down through and including verse 9. So let's read and we'll study. Galatians 3.1 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Amen. That gives you a sense of or not (laughs) of what we're about to study. Again, I know we read this little snippet and you in your mind are going, what is he talking about? So I'll connect you to where we've come from and where we're heading. So Galatians, we've been studying through the entirety of the letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the region of Galatia. As I've said before, Galatia is not a single church. It's not a city, it's a region. There's multiple churches in that region that Paul is writing to. The apostle Paul is trying to rescue the people of Galatia in these various churches from a false and destructive message that had crept in after Paul came and brought the message of grace. Now remember when we say grace, what we're talking about is a gift. When you receive grace, you get something you didn't deserve. You receive a gift. And Paul brought the message to them that God's blessing to them was just a gift. And then after that, Others brought in a different message. Now, I could say, and and maybe some would understand this, maybe for others it would be confusing, the book of Galatians is about, I'll give you the theological term, justification by faith. And some of you go, "Uh uh-huh, justification by faith, what does that mean? Well, you'll find out what that means as we go through. I'll tell you this, the main issue at stake, as Paul writes this letter, what is the relationship, between God and man supposed to be like. How does that relationship work? What does God like? What does God not like? What is he looking for from me? Now, at the time that Paul's writing, now 2000 years ago, things have not changed very much. The same things they struggle with are the same things we struggle with. People or people or people or people or people, or people throughout history. And some are saying at that time that God's blessing, that relationship with God and good standing with God is a reward that a person gets based on strict external obediences. Don't eat this. Don't wear that. Don't communicate with them. Do the right thing in the right way at the right time. And then that's how you get God's blessing in your life. And Paul is saying the opposite, that actually God's blessing in your life From salvation and on is actually a gift, not a reward. That God gives it to people as a gift when they enter into a trusting relationship with him. Paul's saying that what really matters is trusting God internally and relationally, listen carefully, even if it is imperfectly. So some would say, well, yes, it's by faith, but it's got to be a perfect faith, a faith that always trusts God to the nth degree. And Paul's going to show us and the life of Abraham will show us that God honors even imperfect faith. If you think about relationships, and they're all based on trust, and God says, your relationship with me is no different. It is based on trust. Trust opens the door because trust allows me to come in, and when you let me in, then I can do what I've always wanted to do. But as long as you keep me out, and sometimes religion is a way to keep God out, not welcome him in, You know what I'm talking about? Shake your head like this if you know. So keeping God out. And God can't do what he wants to do because he's a gentleman. He's not going to force his way into your life. So the message, what Paul is fighting for here is this false message that really speaks well to us, unfortunately, is that everything about our relationship with God is a reward for good behavior. We live in a performance-driven world. You do the right things, you get the right results. And then we come into Christianity and we bring the same understanding. If I do the right things... I get the right results from God. Now, the question for us this morning is, do you remember what life was like just before you came into a relationship with God? For those of us that are saved, for those of us that are currently walking with God, had a born-again experience, do you remember what your life was like when that happened? Think back. How many of you have been saved, like, less than five years? Okay, a few. How many more than 50 years? Anybody more than 50 years? Wow, a lot, lot of old school Christians in here been around the block a few times with God. So you might have to remember a little bit harder. <laughs> it might be more difficult to think back to those days. What was it like? What were you doing? What was God doing in your life as you felt him? Some weird thing is happening. People are talking to you about Jesus. You're feeling something stirring in your life. You've met some friends and they're telling you, they're inviting you to church. But were you living in darkness at the time? Were you confused in your mind and you didn't know it at the time, but now you know, or you knew something was missing in your life. I talked to a guy yesterday who said, man, before I got saved, I was breaking all the commandments. Do you remember how that experience felt when you got saved, when you were born again, how life changed for you, how things looked different, how you responded differently, that even for some of you, there was a miracle involved maybe you experienced a miracle. I know for me, it was a verbal miracle in that I stopped cursing altogether. Gone. I can't explain why or how it happened. It wasn't like I worked at it. It was like all of a sudden God took it from and transformation began to happen in my life. And I think in many lives, that's the experience. But think back to that. Do you remember Paul has spent two chapters talking about his experience with the living God, with Jesus Christ how he was saved, how he received this message from God, and then how he went and spent three years in Arabia. And then he came back and he goes to Jerusalem and he meets with Peter and Paul and Mary. No, that was a band. Never mind. Um, Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. And then he disappears and does ministry privately for about seven or eight years. And then he gets invited to Antioch and he's doing ministry there. And he's just tracking them through all these experiences And then the last place we were in chapter 2, there was that whole Peter hypocrisy thing that happened in Antioch, and Paul has to call him out. Well, the next part of Paul's chronological life with Christ would be that he and Barnabas pick up, sent out by the Spirit to go out on the mission field, and they go on the mission, their first missionary journey. They go through where Barnabas grew up, and they end up in this very region of Galatia, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the people that he's talking to in this letter. But an interesting thing he does in chapter 3, instead of sharing everything regarding his perspective, he could say, and when I came to Galatia, I did this and I did that. He doesn't do that. He flips it around in this chronological review of faith and the work of God through his life. He flips it around and now he asks the Galatians to think about their experience from their standpoint. The question is, as we get into this, what is the place of experience in our Christian life? You see, Martin Luther said that we can be like drunken priests who climb up on one side of the donkey only to fall off the other side. And people are like that. We tend to run from this extreme to that extreme. So the one extreme that when we talk about experience in the Christian life, the one way we can fall off the horse or fall off the donkey is it's, it's all about experience, that anything goes. You know, as long as we can slap the spirit label on it, whatever happens, happens, and it's all in the name of the spirit. How many of you have ever been at a church like that? Where it's just wild and crazy and disorganized and goofy and loony and and it's all said to be of the Spirit. Whatever the experience is, that's valid just because it's my experience. Well, that would be one extreme, and we would disagree with that extreme. But there's the other extreme, and I think this one is the one we go, okay, we don't want that kind of experience, so we run the other way to, well, our Christianity has become too sterile. In other words, we read the Bible, and we know information— but we don't really care about what our experience is with that information because experiences are scary. We can't trust experiences. And so we just read and we know and we reason and we live and that's that. And oftentimes that leads to passionless existence because I'm afraid to experience anything. Well, somewhere there is a middle of the road, a healthy perspective on experience is that anything and everything God says we can and should experience, we want to experience. So there's a lot of things in the Bible like joy, like transformation, like holiness, like love. These are things that are meant to be experienced. They're promises from God, and it's okay to experience them. Now, Paul is sharing and asking his experience, their experience. He's doing this as it relates to the issue of grace versus works. Paul asked them about their conversion experience as it relates to grace versus works. He introduces Abraham and Abraham's experience as it relates to grace versus works. The first mention in Galatians 3, 1 to 9, we have the first mention of the Spirit of God in the book of Galatians. A topic he'll come back to later on in his letter. And we have six rapid fire questions between verses 1 and 5. Paul just litters questions to the Galatians about their experience. He's trying to prove something to them. So we start out in verse one with, oh, foolish or oh, unthinking Galatians. You could say stupid, but that sounds harsh. So, oh, stupid Galatians or unthinking Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? That was the problem. Whatever is happening to them, it's causing them to turn away from truth. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you? As crucified. I love Paul. Paul was a passionate guy, and he begins chapter three with, Oh, foolish Galatians. I mean, he is distraught. He is undone. They're rejecting him, they're rejecting grace, and they're turning back to rules and rituals and traditionalism, and Paul is just undone. And I wanted to express how Paul is feeling. And he asks them the question Who has bewitched you? Now, the first thing I think about is the TV show I watched growing up. Did anybody else watch Bewitched? That's the first thing that came to mind. But it could be translated, who, and it's singular. Who, singular, has given you the evil eye? In other words, we would be able to answer that question easily. Who has bewitched you? Well, these Judaizers, these people telling us that we can't get close to God unless we keep the law, those are the people that are bewitching us. But it's singular, and the idea is that behind even that, There is a singular entity. Do you know who that entity is? Satan himself. Satan is behind disguising himself as an angel of light, behind false teaching, false doctrine, behind a doctrine of law, rules and rituals versus relationship. So he says, who has bewitched you? You know the evil eye kids, the young folks in here. You know that the glance your parents give you when they told you to put your cell phone away. It's time for bed. And they glare at you with that evil eye spouses, you know there's a spousal evil eye, right? Husbands, husbands, come on, you know your wife' evil eye, right? She just looks at you and you, okay, honey, sorry, I'm doing it. For them, it was a superstitious or evil stare that was meant to produce harm is aligned with magic or superstition. Our word, interestingly, our word fascinate or fascinating comes from the Greek through the Latin for the word used here. So you could say, who has fascinated you? In other words, to be fascinated with something is to have someone's complete attention or to have them attracted irresistibly. Have you ever tried to talk to someone while they're on their cell phone? They are fascinated, just on there like, hello, is anybody home? I thought about you go into a preschool where children, 10, 12 kids are watching something on TV. I mean, a bomb could go off outside, And they don't hear it because they're fascinated with what they're watching. It's got their complete attention. So these Judaizers, these law-leading, observant Jewish people, have somehow garnered the complete and utter attention and fascination of the grace-saved Gentiles, non-Jews. And I've known people like that in my brief time in ministry. I've watched people come and people go. And every so often, a couple times a year, You meet a person, and they get saved, they're coming to church, they're getting excited, then all of a sudden, they're all interested in the law. They're all interested in keeping the Sabbath, and in keeping the law, and all these different things. They get fascinated with that, and they almost become a different person. And it's like, I feel like, Paul, like, what planet are you on? Like, you've changed, something's happened to you, it's like you're under a spell. That would be the same kind of idea. You've become spellbound, enamored with this idea, this concept of somehow Keeping the law is better than grace. I've seen people come and go from these very seats, falling back into the law. Now they can't come to church Sunday. It's only Saturday. And now they got to do this and they got to do that. And they can't hang out with us anymore. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. In other words, the truth is Jesus Christ had to be crucified for your salvation. And this is what he said just previously. If you could have been saved by your own law keeping or ritualism or traditionalism, if that was the key to salvation, then Jesus Christ wouldn't have had to be crucified. But what Paul brought to the Galatians is they needed a savior. And he displayed like a public display, like a billboard, he said. And he brought Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the message. And they heard it and they believed it. And it began to change their lives. And so he's saying, when I came, I gave you Jesus Christ and him crucified. I gave you everything you needed. And now you're turning away so soon. Look at verse 2. He says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? He says, Galatians, oh, tell me this. What was your life like when God stepped in? When you received the Spirit, how did it happen? So there would have been no argument. They knew, he knew, that they had received the Spirit of God. Now, we have a different problem today. If I ask a person casually, we're out to lunch, out to coffee, we've met some problem, some issue they want to talk about, I say, have you ever been born again? They say, uh, well, I, I've been going to church since I was young, grow up in church. No, no, I asked you, have you ever been born Again? Well, I served at my church for a long time. No, no, no. Have you ever been born again? I think and finally they go, I don't know. Or I say, Have you ever received the Spirit of God? This is essential to God's word. This is not a a negotiable thing like some Christians have, some Christians haven't. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have God. So they would have known. I say, have you received the Spirit of God? And some say, I don't know. All I know is I I've shown up at church. My parents took me to church. I kept going to church. It's just part of the routine of my life, but I don't know. And sometimes it's just ignorance. You have, but you just don't know you have. You don't know what it's supposed to look like because no one's ever taught you. But sometimes, and for many people, and maybe for some in this room this morning, the Christian life is just a routine I go through. It doesn't really affect me in any other part of my life. I show up for church on Sunday. That should be good enough for God. The rest of the time is mine. And when I ask you, have you ever received the spirit of God? You say, I'm not sure. Well, they knew. So it wasn't a problem. They knew they had received the spirit of God. They knew that something for them had changed radically, something internal, not something external. You don't have to have the spirit of God to keep religious routine. Say amen to that. You can do religious routine all day long without God. Sometimes religious routine keeps us from God. So he says, the question isn't, do they or do they not have the spirit of God? The question is, how did it happen? When you got saved, when the Spirit of God came to dwell in your life and transform you, how did that happen? Did you have to get your act together first, is what he's saying to them. Did you get it by the works of the law? I mean, did you have to get your act together for God to bless you? Or did you come, uh, no act, no pretense, I just need God? Again, some people say, I don't know about your life, I know about my life, that when I got saved, I was about as far from God as a person could get. I was searching for something, But man, I wasn't doing all the right things. I didn't know what repentance was. I never heard of a Galatian in my life. Didn't know where that was or what it was. Maybe some of you were like me. I didn't know nothing about nothing. But I knew this, that there was an inexplicable internal voice that's not validatable by some experiment you could do. I heard the voice of God in my heart. And it was real enough to change my life. And God asked me a simple question, Steve, what are you doing? And the answer was, I ain't walking with you, that's for sure. And at that point, that began the transformation of a life. And it didn't happen because I got my act together or I started going to church and following all the rules and doing all the right things and expecting that God would reward me because I got my act together. And this should be encouraging to you. This should be a great reason for you to invite just those people in your life that are just a pain in the neck. Like, you need Jesus. Come to church. Because you don't have to get your act together. Just come to church and listen to the word of God. Because that's what he says. It wasn't because they adopted Judaism or traditions or Jewish culture. It was because of the hearing of faith. They heard the word of God. And when they heard it, they had a choice. Just like you're hearing this morning. They had a choice. Do they trust God or do they not trust God? Do they keep God at a distance or they believe what he says? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for you individually, for you personally, that God loves you personally so much that he gave a son so that you could be saved not after you got your act together, but that his love is commended to you while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You either believe it or you don't believe it. And that affects the way you live. It was the truth. Jesus told the Pharisees, it's not your Pharisaic religion that's going to set you free. In John chapter 8, he says, the truth that'll set you free. And it's still the same today. Religion doesn't set you free. Truth sets you free when it's believed. When it's believed and trusted. Are you with me? Okay. Verse 3 again, he says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Okay, okay. Maybe they would concede. Maybe the law people would concede Maybe the rules defenders would concede. Okay, when you got saved, you guys were pagans speaking to the Galatians. You were worshiping your idols and you didn't know nothing from nothing. That's fine. You needed God to give you grace then. But if you really want to experience the fullness of God, it can only come through keeping of the law. Matter of fact, you were saved to keep the rules. And now it's up to you to do the right things. God blessed you initially, you needed it, but now the real blessing is from keeping the rules. I think that's what they would have said, because that's what he says here, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? The spirit was a good beginning. Anybody ever felt like that? Spirit is a good beginning, you know, but now it's up to me to stay blessable, as if you could. In our trip to Israel, We sat one night, we had a Bible study, and we're in the lobby of the hotel, and it's Shabbat, so the Jews, they call it the Israeli invasion. On Shabbat, a lot of Jewish families come to the hotel so they don't have to cook, and that's, you know, part of Shabbat is not cooking, not kindling a fire. So they go to the hotel, and the Gentiles cook for them, and the people in the restaurant cook for them, and they enjoy family time, and it's a wonderful thing to watch. So the ladies are over here talking, and our group had just had a Bible study, and one of the guys had his guitar out, in there singing, and they're singing, and a Jewish woman gets up to walk over there, and I thought, oh, man, she is mad. We're going to be in trouble. And she sits down, and she begins to communicate with us in her broken English and our completely lack of Hebrew. Uh, we begin to have this conversation, and she says to us, why aren't you Jewish? A Great question. So we begin a conversation, and at one point in the conversation, you know, because she was saying that she keeps Torah, And so I opened up the Bible, I pulled it up on my cell phone, which really was not legal because the cell phone has a light in it and they can't use a cell phone on the Shabbat because if there's a light, there's a fire. There's a kindled fire inside my phone. But she said, well, I hope God forgives me. Another conversation. But I turned to Leviticus, I think it's 19, where the law says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. To that, we had another wonderfully honest conversation about how she felt toward her Palestinian neighbors. And she said, I can't love my Palestinian neighbors. You know what our country is going through. You know the difficulty we're having. And she was very beautifully honest, wonderful woman. Her name was J.L. And she was blown away that we actually know the story from the book of Judges. She's like, you know that? No way. So we had this wonderful conversation about that and about this idea that I can keep the law. Just right there, I'm done. Love my neighbors myself. Done. It's over for me right at that point. I failed. So having begun in the Spirit, Paul says, now are you going to take things into your hands? Now is it up to you to keep the law, to try to maintain a good standing before God? The Message Bible says it like this. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you're going to bring it to completion? How are you going to finish it yourself? See, the danger as a church, this verse speaks to me, the beginnings of Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. Some of you were around. Some of you have heard the stories. I didn't know anything about being a pastor. I don't have a seminary degree. I didn't go to the conferences, taking the course material. I don't know about planting a church. If God's not going to do it, it ain't going to happen. And I'm just being honest. Like we had a Bible and a joy and excitement and a calling and just let's see what God does. And it was exciting. Scary as all get out. You know, I sit on a stool because my knees used to shake. If I stood up, my knees would just vibrate violently up and down. So I'm like, I gotta sit down. And I kinda like it. Anyway. So the danger is you got nothing except faith and a Bible. And, and now we've been around 15 years. We got budgets. We got staff. We got a band. You know, we got some worldly wisdom, how business is run. And it's so easy when you have resources to go, thanks God for getting us started, but now we don't need you anymore. We got church figured out. Does that scare you like it scares me? So I expect you to hold me accountable. If we start getting too big for our riches, or start thinking that we know more than God and you sense that from our leadership, you call me on it. You go to this verse and say, Steve, having begun in the spirit, do you now think you're dependent on your bands and your budget and your finances and your staff and all those things? We're still dependent, not by might, Zechariah chapter four, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it's the same for you personally. I see it all the time. People come to church, they're broken, their lives are falling apart. They don't necessarily know God and many times they don't want God. They just want things from God. Don't want God, just want the things that God can give them and get their life better and then out they go. I just need something from God right now to get me through but then I can handle it from there. So they show up, they're broken, they're hurting. God begins to do a work in their life and then they say, oh, I got a job. Now, unfortunately, I can't do anything you know, church-wise anymore because I'm so busy working all the time. Because now what I'm saying is, I really believe it's up to me. God got me started, but now it's up to me. I'm not saying that there's not work involved, that God doesn't call us to work for a living. He does. Being a Christian is not about sitting back, eating chips, watching movies all day, and praying for a miracle that the fridge will open up and a sandwich will float out to you. You hungry? Go get a sandwich. So you know that's not what I'm saying. But you know that you know that you know when you feel that way, when you feel like, I can't trust God to produce the results I want. I have to take care of it. You know, if you're honest with yourself, how do you feel when something bad happens in your life? Oh, God is good and God is blessing when everything is going how we expect it to go. But then when something we perceive as bad happens, we say, oh God, where are you? I don't know if I can trust you. And then you start to blame yourself. Oh, if only I had prayed more. Maybe I should have read my Bible more. I got a flat tire because I skipped morning devotions. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Or this happened or that happened. So we immediately, and it reveals something, we immediately revert back to law. What you're saying is I believe that if I do all the right things, then the right things will happen. I can manipulate God with my works to do what I want him to do. And if something doesn't happen, if God doesn't do what I want him to do, it's my fault. I didn't do the right thing. And so therefore, if I do the right thing, then I can manipulate God to do the right thing for me. Do you know that feeling? Check and see if you got a pulse. Anybody got a pulse? Then we've done it. We've thought it. Because that's how we live. We're a performance-based people. That's why the gospel of grace is so hard to get. We cannot believe that God just loves us and just wants to bless us for who we are, right how we are, because of who He is. And it's just hard to believe. It's just absolutely hard to believe. Verse four says, have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? In other words, there's two ways to look at this passage. I'll give you both ways and tell you my opinion. The word for suffered is the word from pathos. It's the where we get our word for experience or strong feelings, where we get the word passion from. So he says, you could say, have you experienced so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? It could mean that they were really suffering, going through some persecution and then attempting to go back under law to avoid being persecuted. That's one that they really are suffering persecution as Christians. But I think the flow of it would work better if he says, have you suffered? Have you experienced so many spiritual things? Have you experienced transformation? And have you experienced love filling your heart? Have you experienced this change in your life? And now you're going to walk away from that? What do you look back on that and say, that was empty? That was nothing? I don't know about you, but I look back. We all struggle with doubt at some point in our lives. Can you say amen to that? On some level, at some way, we struggle with doubt because God is invisible. And so we love the one who we cannot see. So we go, oh God, are you really there? Am I making this all up in my mind? We have those struggles. And I go back like Paul is taking them back. To when I got saved, to the early days of my Christian life. And the things that happened to me and the things that have happened to you. And I had one person first service say, Pastor, I was four when I got saved. You know, I used to hit people with Legos or something. That was my pre-Christian experience. And some of you have grown up in Christian homes and I get that. But for a lot of us, I look back at the who I was and how I lived and the way my mind worked and how God spoke to my heart in a tangible way. And when I doubt, I have to go back and remember the reality of those experiences. That was not an accident. It was not my imagination. It changed my life forever. I am not the person I used to be. Amen? And those experiences, they were not in vain. Those things keep me going now. I go back to the beginnings of our church. Sometimes people will hear me say that when I feel like, oh, we're not doing enough for people or this or that. I just go back and I say, thank God for what he did when we had a Bible and faith. And that was all we had. And I always go back to that because that was more than enough. And it still is. So have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? And he's hoping that it's not, it's not too late. Therefore, verse five, he who supplies the spirit in abundance is the idea. He who supplies the spirit to you And works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Again, it's like he has a game going on. Okay, it's like truth or dare. It's law or faith. Okay, Galatians, I'm going to ask you another question and you're going to answer law or faith. Are you ready? Here's the question God supplies the Spirit to you. Does he do it by law, by rule keeping? Does he do it in response as a reward to your good behavior? Does he do it because he loves you and because he wants to give you a gift? You know the answer, church, right? It's because it's a gift. It's a gift. Now, he who supplies the spirits and works miracles among you. They had seen, you read the book of Acts, the city of Lystra, a healing happens. They seen these things. And the miracles that were happening, any of you have experienced miracle at the time of your salvation? So Maybe some have, maybe some have not. I know a few that have. It was the response of God that's to bless you. Francis Chan. Do you know who Francis Chan is? Someone just sent me an article yesterday. He's left his church a few years ago in California. Now he's moving to Asia. He's doing ministry in some unreached villages in Myanmar. He was telling the story. He's preaching at Moody Bible Institute, telling the story about how he goes, gets this invitation into this village. They've never heard the gospel before. And as he begins to share about the creator God, the one and only living and creator God, who also had a son, who sent his son to die for them, he shares this story, the gospel with them, this message. Two kids, a boy and a girl, I think it was. You can check me on that. They are deaf. And during that, as they pray for them, and Francis Chan said he was just praying, oh God, oh God, you got to heal these kids. Like I'm hanging out to dry. And they both received their hearing. And preaching at Moody, he said, I've never experienced it in all my years of ministry doesn't happen all the time. And he says that may not happen again, but it happened. It's real. And it's not a reward. So sometimes you're told that spiritual things, spiritual growth in your life is a reward. You got to praise louder. Oh, if you don't raise your hands during worship, then I'm not sure God can bless you. If you really want to move on. You got to speak in tongues. You got to do this thing. You got to do that thing. And then God will give you more of his spirit. Tell me that, you know, that, you know, that, you know, that God does not give his spirit by measure. With God, it is all or nothing. And the question that we always ask is not whether or not we have all of the spirit. You know the question, right? The question is, does the spirit have all of me? That's the better question. That's the right question. And the answer for their question would have been, I heard the word of God. And when I heard it, I trusted it. And that brought faith. Faith, faith, faith. I trusted what God said. And then all of a sudden, verse 6, Abraham shows up. Where's Abraham come from? Why are you talking about Abraham, Paul? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You're going to hear a lot about Abraham over the coming chapters in Galatians. Abraham is the father of Judaism. They were focused on Moses. Paul takes them back. They were focused on circumcision. Paul takes them back. Who? Abraham. Every Jew... And even some Muslims would connect themselves to Abraham. Christians, Muslims, Jews all connect themselves to Abraham. But can I give you a little piece of reference material? When Abraham encountered God, he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. There was no such thing as a Jew. No one was born Jewish before Abraham. He came out of a Canaanite idolatrous or Babylonian idolatrous family. His dad made little statues. And he's saying Abraham on purpose because he's arguing that non-Jews are saved by faith, not by becoming Jewish. Do you catch Paul's reasoning? Paul's brilliant. Let's go back to Abraham because in Abraham's life, God made a promise to him. You are going to have children. says, look up at the stars of the sky. If you can count those, that's how many children you're going to have. Wow. So in chapter 15, God reminds Abraham of this promise because at that time, Abraham didn't have any kids, no biological kids. He had a servant in his house, and he says, God, my servant is going to be the inheritor of everything I have. What's up with that? you made me these promises. And God says, no, no, Abraham, I'm going to do it for you. It's going to be a child from your own body. You don't have to worry about that. And when God said that, Abraham, it just says he believed God right here. He believed God, and that was credited to his account for a right relationship with God. Abraham, you don't have to do anything, but trust me. Trust opens the door for God to work in your life. God wants to work in your life. And trust says, come in and have your way in. But when you don't trust God, you can be in church and be far from God. You can keep God at a distance. I'll come to church, but my life is my life. I want to control my life. I don't want you to control my life. I don't trust you. I don't think you'll produce the life I want. So I'll keep you at a distance and you'll never experience the things that God has for you. So Abraham is connected with circumcision. Chapter 15, he gets this reminder of the promise. Chapter 16 is the imperfect faith. I said, remember, it only takes imperfect faith. In chapter 15, he says, I believe you, God, and it's counted to him for righteousness right there. He's good with God. He and God are in a relationship. Their Facebook status changes in a relationship with God. But chapter 16, he says, God, you're not doing it fast enough. I don't know how it's going to work, so i got to step in and help God out. Anybody ever been guilty of that? We've got to step in and help God out, and you live to tell the story and regret that? But God doesn't say, okay, we're done, Abraham, it's over. You know, you blew it, you said you trusted me, but then you didn't, so we're done. Abraham still, if you could take an x-ray of Abraham's heart, you would still see faith even though it was imperfect. This should really be speaking to you guys. Even though it was imperfect, he trusted God, but he didn't understand, and he tried this, and he tried that. By the time we get to chapter 22, Abraham's faith has grown. You know, faith is invisible. The only way you see it is by what you do. You do works of faith, works that come from faith. And by chapter 22, Abraham finally has the child of promise. His name is Isaac. And God says, okay, the child of promise, I want you to take him up the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham goes, well, let me see, God. I have this child, Isaac, and Isaac is the child of promise. And if I'm going to bless many nations and I'm going to have a great big family and it's, it's going to come from my body, then uh, you're calling me to sacrifice my son. I'm kind of not getting it, but I've learned over the years to trust you. So I trust it. even if you have me sacrifice him, even if you have me kill him, I think you could raise him from the dead. That's faith. And that was a growing faith in Abraham's life. Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Even when God said, sacrifice your own son. Therefore, verse 7, and we'll bring this to a close. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So they would connect themselves, man, the Jews are the people of God. And by nationality, you're blessed. And that was that. And the problem is, is that if you're not the people of God, if you're not Jewish then you're out, unless you become Jewish, and then you can be blessed. But the Jews are the people of God. We're descendants of Abraham, and that alone is our key to God's blessing. And Paul says, actually, the sons of Abraham are the ones who believe like he did, the ones who have his faith, not just his genetics, but his faith. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith— preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham. What did that sound like? Here's what it sounded like. Abraham believed God. He had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes is the tribe of Judah. And out of the tribe of Judah comes the Savior, who is Jesus. And through Jesus, the gospel, the good news, the message of God goes out to every nation of the world. That's good news. I don't have to be Jewish. I don't have to get my act together. I don't have to perform rituals. I don't have to give a certain amount of money. I just have to trust in the living God. Isn't that wonderful? So then, if you want to be blessed... Verse 9 tells us, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. Oh, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. So I think the real hope as we continue to study this is that you would find yourself being set free in your mind. Jesus said in verse 7, during the last day of the feast, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. So as I said before, I don't know if God is speaking to somebody in here. You can do all the religious things. You can sit in church. And really, I guess my heart this morning is not just for people that have come from darkness and addiction or whatever brokenness you've come from. The real appeal is to the religious. To the religious, having gone through the motions all of your life, but never actually seen transformation or power Or conviction come into your life if I asked you have you been born again you would say I don't know if I asked you have you experienced the Spirit of God come into your life you might say i go to church I've been in church all my life was raised in church but the Spirit of God I don't know it's you I want to pray for this morning because there is an experience a real experience with God that transcends religious routine And that's what you're meant to enjoy, this vibrant, experiential relationship with the living God.